Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Message this morning is a man, two women, and two babies. And uh, when Paul is writing and dealing with these Galatians, and you have to understand that the problems that Paul dealt with in Galatians and the problems that he dealt with in the epistles are still with us today. There are still people that try to add something to the simplicity of the gospel. There are still people that try to say they can help God out in one way or the other. They may never vocalize it. They may never write it down and put it in print, but somewhere back there in that mind, in that subconscious or even in conscious thought, there's this idea, if I do this, then I get an edge with God. If I do this, then God will answer all my prayers. If I do this, and I do this enough, and if I'm good enough, and if I serve enough, then God just can't tell me I can't go to heaven because I've been such a good person and such a moral person, and I've done good things, and I've served mankind, and I've done things for humanity. But there is no righteousness in the eyes of God apart from the righteousness of Christ. And we live in His righteousness. Now, Paul is dealing with these people that are trying to say that righteousness comes by keeping the law, by circumcision, by Sabbath-keeping, by observance of special days. And he's trying to say, if you do all those things as a Christian, you're really a Christian. And Paul says, you're backsliding into nothing because you can't stand on that ground. And so beginning in verse 21, Paul deals with an allegory here. And in verse 21, he says, tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, what he's asking is, do you understand what you're saying when you say you want to be under the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one with a bondwoman and one with a free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman are through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, You are not in labor for numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. In other words, nothing's changed. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, this is a tough passage. I mean, when you just read it, you go, man, this was that Sunday I should have gone to the beach. (laughs) I just shouldn't have been here today. I should have skipped this one and said, trust you on that one, pastor. Whatever you say, I'm for it. 
Uh, but this is a tough passage because he is writing an allegory, and he's dealing with something here, but it is not a passage that we need to ignore. Many commentators, when they get to this passage in Galatians, kind of skip over it or summarize it in just a couple of paragraphs or, say, refer to somebody else. But I want us to look at it because I think there are truths here that we need to see about the Word of God and how it relates all the way back to the time of Abraham. And so you may want to stick your finger in Genesis 15 and 16 because we'll look in that in just a few moments. But I I want us to deal with what this passage is doing. And let me tell you a little bit about why Paul is doing this. Remember, Paul was a rabbi. He was a teacher of the law. He was familiar with how the rabbis would interpret Scripture. And one of the ways that the deep thinkers of the rabbis would interpret Scripture was an allegory. In fact, some of them, there was a whole track of teachers and rabbis at the time of Paul that considered themselves enlightened to the point that the literal meaning of a text was the least important meaning of a text. And Paul says, if you want to play that game, I'll play it. This is the method that the Judaizers were using. They were not looking at the literal meaning of the text. What does the text obviously say? They were looking for hidden meanings and for stories and and for using it for allegory. And the, the rabbis did this. And so this is what they would look for. The rabbis would look for four things. First of all, they would look for the obvious or literal meaning. The obvious or the literal meaning. They had four ways that they would approach a passage. First thing, the obvious or literal meaning. Secondly, the suggested meaning. What did they think that passage suggested? What ideas could come out of that by reading it and studying it? Thirdly, the meaning deduced by investigation. In other words, as they dug into it, what meaning did they see that they didn't see initially, but they deduced it, they came up with it by investigating it, by studying what other rabbis had said about it, by evaluating it against other books or things. And then there was the allegorical meaning. And so Paul says in verse 24, this is allegorically speaking. Now, I know this is a little heavy for Sunday morning, but this is a a major lesson in hermeneutics. And one of the things about hermeneutics, and by the way, hermeneutics is not Herman Munster's cousin, just so you know. It sounds like a weird thing, but it's a process by which Bible scholars interpret Scripture. If you want to, somebody ever says it's not good hermeneutics, it just means it's not a good system of interpreting Scripture. It's not a good way of evaluating what Scripture says. Good hermeneutics deals with the text as it is in the context of the book in which it is written and then in the context of the testament, old or new in which it is written, then in the context of the total Bible in which it is written. So you never take a text out of context because you come up with a pretext that may not be valid. And so Paul is writing to these rabbis and he's dealing with allegory. Now, let me just explain something here. Allegory does not mean that the events didn't happen. Paul is not saying, oh, well, all that story about Abraham and Sarah, it really didn't happen. Now, there are liberal scholars who have used verse 24 to say, see, Paul didn't even believe that the stories in Genesis happened because he said, look, it's allegorically speaking. 
That's an ignorant theologian and someone who's not being honest with the Bible. Paul says, I'm using this message. These events happen. They are literal events, but I'm going to give you a figurative interpretation, which is what an allegory is. It's a figurative interpretation. And so Paul takes this method that these Judaizers and these legalists wanted to use to say, now, this is what it really means. And Paul says, okay, if you're going to play that game, I can beat you at it. And I can use the same story that you're using, and I can show how you have not been consistent with the true Word of God in the way you've used that story. And so Paul is stating a case. This is not Paul's normal way of teaching, nor should it be ours. You should not look at Scripture and say, I wonder if there's an allegorical meaning there. You know what happens? When people do that, they put words in the mouth of God that God never said. They imply that there's some figurative meaning to it. Uh, You have this in the word of knowledge movement that's going around the world right now that somehow God can reveal to you or to me a word of knowledge that is equal to or supersedes or is on the same level as Scripture. Now, let me just tell you, any good theologian will tell you that's not possible. God closed his written revelation of himself with the book of Revelation. There is no book to be added to it, for if you add a book to it, you take away from it. It is the revealed Word of God contained in the 66 books that we call the Bible. The Word of Knowledge, people say, well, God told me that this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Let me tell you how you know they're all liars, because everything they say is not 100% true. They say, I, I, God has given me a word of knowledge that, that these people are going to be healed. Well, if all 100% of them aren't, that's a false prophet. I don't care if he's got church on his door. That's a false prophet. If somebody says, God has revealed to me that this is going to happen and this is going to happen, uh, and you just name them. They're on TV everywhere. And they make broad predictions and they make prophecies and when they're not fulfilled just turn it off folks because it's a false teaching it's a false teacher that's trying to use God's people and manipulate God's people to make you think that he's got an inside track with God that you don't have listen he does not have any more of the Holy Spirit than you have God doesn't pick people out and say, I'm going to tell you something to tell the world. God picked Jesus out and said, Jesus is going to tell you something to tell the world. So you got to make sure you stay with that. Because here's what happens. I know what's happened. It's happened to some of you. Somebody takes allegory and then they take other ideas like this and try to add to the Bible. And here's what they come up with. You know, the Bible is full of codes. It's a mathematic process, and there are codes hidden all inside the Scripture. Really? Well, if we needed to know that, why didn't Jesus tell us that? And why didn't the Holy Spirit tell the early church that? Why isn't there a verse in the Bible that says there are hidden codes, and you need to seek the Lord to find them? Why did codes suddenly come up in our time? Can I just give you a principle? If it's new, it's not true. Because what is true has always been true, will be true after we're gone. If it's new, it's not true. 
And this whole idea about Bible codes and hidden meanings and, and all of these things that come up, taking a plain text and giving it some mystical meaning is fun. And it's interesting. But what it does, it makes your Bible like silly putty. Any of you ever have silly putty? And you take it out of that little egg and you just kind of play with it and everything. And, you know, you just kind of mold it into whatever you want it to be. And then you went and told your mother what it was because she didn't have a clue. We can make the Bible like silly putty. It's fun to play with, but it's dangerous to build your theology on silly putty. Now, for instance, many times in Scripture, wind represents the Holy Spirit. But not every time. So every time you read the word wind, it doesn't mean, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. You better read it in context. God just may be saying, hey, there was a wind blowing. Does that make sense? Many times in the Bible, when you see the word oil, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Not every time. And so you don't imply just because every time you see the word oil, don't write in the margin of the Bible, Holy Spirit. Because it may not have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. It may just be they were in the dark and they needed to light a lamp. It can be a simple interpretation. Never ignore the obvious. I mean, the obvious is there for a reason. The geographical setting is there for a reason. The, the, the things are there, obviously, because they're obvious. Now, don't look at me like this is the first time you've heard this. I mean, don't take the clear teaching of the Word of God and try to make it into something more than what God has revealed of himself to man. Now, let me just give you a great principle from Vance Abner. The Bible was given to feed sheep, not giraffes. Which means God put it down where we could all understand it. And if you've got to have some person with a hidden knowledge or some person with another revelation or some person that says you cannot ascend to this elite status or some person that says I have a word that God has given me over and above the scripture that he hasn't given you, that person is not speaking for God. Jesus said, I'm a good shepherd and my sheep follow me. He didn't say I'm a good giraffe tamer. He said, I'm a shepherd. Why? Because shepherds know that sheep need leading and guiding and correcting and nourishing, and they got to get them into the field where they can be fed. They can't say, if you'll get like me, you can reach your neck over this fence and you can eat from that tree. It's right down there where they can eat it. Now, Paul is saying these Judaizers are trying to make something out of the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael that it's not. And so he deals with them and he talks about the characteristics of the allegory. Verse 21, he uses sarcasm. I've been criticized from time to time for being sarcastic, but I figure if Paul can be sarcastic and Jesus can be sarcastic, I'm in pretty good company. So if sarcasm offends you, then bring it up to Jesus when you get to heaven. Because he mocked some of the religious leaders that walked around with their arrogance and was sarcastic toward them. And so was Paul. Paul says, so you've worked this out, huh? 
So you got this all figured out. So you've got this religion of law and, and work. So, oh, okay, I can play that game. I'm going to give you an illustration, an allegory, just like you give. I'm going to tell you a story. And he gives them the points of references, and he puts history through the filter of allegory. And so let's look. There are eight points of references. First of all, he refers to two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, two mothers, And there are two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. So you've got two mothers in this story, Hagar and Sarah, two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, two covenants, law and grace, and two cities, an earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. So you have two covenants, law and grace, two cities, heavenly Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. Now, that's as simple as you can define. If you want something just to write down in in the margin of your Bible somewhere, that's as simply as you can define what this allegory is about. These are the characters in the story. Now, Paul makes application of the allegory and points the points of revelation and application are these. Hagar represents bondage. Sarah represents freedom. Paul says, do you want to be in bondage or do you want to be in freedom? Do you want to be in bondage to rules and regulations or you want to live in the freedom of Christ that you were introduced to at the beginning? Secondly, he says, by the way, the four times Sarah is used as free in this passage. Ishmael represents the flesh. Isaac represents the promise. Ishmael represents the flesh. Isaac represents the promise. Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah trying to help God out. Isaac was God getting in the process. Thirdly, the first covenant was of the law, which made demands that could not be met. None of us can live up to the law. None of us can live up to the standards, to the demands of the laws of God. That's why we're all sinners. That's why we're all guilty. The second covenant is of grace, and Jesus met every demand of the law on our behalf. And so who fulfilled the law? Christ fulfilled the law. And so the question comes, do you want to try to fulfill the law on your own, which you already know you can't, therefore you can't be saved, you can't continue to walk with God by trying to keep the law, because even this week you've broken the law at some point. Do you want to operate under that system or do you operate under grace where Jesus has met all the demands of the law for you on your behalf and you stand not in your own righteousness but in his righteousness? So Paul says, if you want to talk stories, which story do you want to fall into? Which book would you like to be in? And then there's the Jerusalem, which is the city of rules and rabbis, which Paul had been a keen part of that city. And then there's the heavenly Jerusalem, which is a city of righteousness. And so Paul is making his final stab at correcting the error among the Galatians. He's dealing with them about what the law could never do, what Hagar and Ishmael could never be. And he challenges them. And here's his challenge. Are you so bent on being under the law? If you are, do you understand the law? Now, let me tell you, whether we consciously think it or not, When we think I can be good to be saved or I can be 
good and keep rules and keep the law to maintain my salvation, what we are saying is I can be perfect in my own strength and I don't need God and I don't need the Holy Spirit. Now that's the end result of that logic. I don't need the Holy Spirit inside of me to empower me. I don't need God's Word. I can do it by being good and trying harder, doing better, turning over new leaves, and and trying to maintain to the nth degree every measure of the law. But Paul says to them, you need to read the law through the lens of grace because the law never said it's the end. The law said, it's over for you, but there's grace coming. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the Messiah. He says, you can't keep it. Nobody can keep it. Abraham was justified by grace. He believed God, and God counted it unto him righteousness. So here's what the Judaizers did, and here's what legalists do. They wanted to pick and choose which laws they obeyed. They wanted to decide for themselves. Well, I like this law. I don't have any problem living up to this law, so I'm going to obey this law. I'm going to pick this law, and that's what I'm going to hammer everybody else to do, is to be just like me in keeping this law so that they can be spiritual like I'm spiritual. And Paul basically says, that's a joke. You're trying to justify yourself on a preconceived idea that doesn't have merit in Scripture. Leon Morris said, a superficial acquaintance with the law under the guidance of inspiring leaders is not at all the same as a genuine understanding of what law teaches and what it demands. Now, I want you to listen to this quote by Martin Luther. Luther was a great priest and a monk. I want you to follow along and listen. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if a monk could ever get to heaven by monkery, I was that monk. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, my prayers, my reading, and other work. Then I grasped the justice of God that is righteousness by which through grace and the sheer mercy of God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. Now, can I just kind of paraphrase Martin Luther here for a minute? I was a good Baptist and I kept every rule that the Baptist church told me to keep. I checked all the boxes on my envelope. I was there Sunday morning and Sunday night, Wednesday night. I gave money in the offering plate. I served when they asked me to serve. If anybody could ever get to heaven by being a good Baptist, I'm it. But I almost killed myself trying to be good enough to be a good Baptist. And then one day God told me, you don't have to be a good Baptist You have to be a person yielded to Jesus Christ as your sole sufficiency for salvation and for living. And when you do that, you'll quit driving yourself crazy and wearing yourself out and going in circles and digging ruts. You will discover that there is freedom in Christ. Now, which would you rather be? Would you rather be a good monk and a good Baptist? Or would you rather be a good believer. I vote for a good believer. 
Now, I serve God. I willingly serve God. And I come and I attend and I give and I do all those things. But I'm not doing it to try to get an edge with God. I'm doing it because I love him. Not because I'm obligated to do it. My obligation is to the law of love, which is what we're going to look at tonight. Slavery to the law is nothing less than trying to meet the demands of God in, in my flesh. And so Paul, the Jude, here's what the Judaizers were saying. Well, Abraham is our father. Paul uses this story to say, who's your mama? I, I know you know Abraham's your father. Who's your mama? Is it Sarah or is it Hagar? Because Paul says keeping the law doesn't lead you back to Abraham and Sarah. They predate the law by 430 years. Keeping the law leads you back to Abraham and Hagar, trying in the flesh to do what cannot be done to please God. So physically, they were descendants of Sarah and Isaac. But spiritually, they were descendants of Hagar and Ishmael. Say, well, they were Jews. But spiritually, they were just like those who were not under the covenant. And so that brings us to the fact that every religion is one or two paths. If you look at the children of Ishmael today, they do things so that they hope they get to heaven. In asking a Muslim cab driver, do you know you're going to heaven? I hope so. But only Allah knows. Wrong answer. I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You may hope so, I know so. Why would you live your whole life trying to be good enough to hope that you've been good enough or you've done enough to get yourself into the presence of Allah when you can say, by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, I can come to Christ, a a sinner saved by grace through faith. And when I die, I go to heaven. Now, which way would you want to live? But the children of Ishmael still live in their bondage of religion because they think they can work even to the point of blowing themselves up or killing infidels. They think they can work to get to heaven. Can I just say emphatically on the authority of God, it ain't gonna happen. And it's not going to happen inside a Baptist church either by people that think I'm just going to try harder and do better. It ain't going to happen. And some of you have been trying to help God out all your life, and God doesn't need your help. God needs your availability, not your abilities. Your abilities are of no use to him until you're available to him. Your works are like wood, hay, and stubble until you get before God and realize it is only through the power of Jesus Christ that you have anything to offer him that is of merit in his sight. So you got a choice. You have a religion of works or you have a religion of grace. I'm going with the religion of grace because I can't work hard enough to make up for the junk I did before I got saved and the stupid things I've done since I've been saved. So I better depend on Jesus. You sleep better at night, by the way, when you do that. Uh, One last thing. Uh, There's a caution 
Paul is talking about the fact that Christ died to set us free, but he also died to keep us free. So, two things. Don't let anybody enslave you. Don't let anybody enslave you. Secondly, don't enslave yourself. Don't enslave yourself. Don't go back to an old way of thinking. Have a renewed mind. Have a new mind. Let all things be new in Christ Jesus. Don't go back to an old way of thinking, an old system of thinking that doesn't teach you to walk by faith. And so Paul is dealing with them, and he, and he says, you know, here's the problem. Here's the application, and don't miss it. And this is where many of us trip up every day, if not sporadically, every day. Here's where we tri- trip up. Trying to do God's work our way. That's when you get in trouble. When you try to do the will of God your way, when you try to do the work of God your way, when you try to serve God your way instead of doing it God's way, trying to work for God, trying to help God out, trying to do the will of God's God's way. Now, that's what Abraham and Sarah did. Uh, They had the God, we're going to help you mentality. Let's just turn to Genesis 15 real quick. I want you to look at it. Genesis 15. Are you okay? Genesis 15. Now, there's this little title thing that's added by the translators. It says, Abram promised a son. All right, so chapter 15 is about a promise. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, not even my own flesh and blood. What are you going to give me? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now listen, God has already told Abraham It's not somebody else. There is a child of promise coming. And it's not Eleazar. And by the way, if he had been listening, when Sarah made the proposal about Hagar, he would have known it's not going to be Ishmael either. He didn't listen at the beginning and he didn't listen in the middle. He didn't learn until the end. And so he said, what are you going to give me? Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward heavens and count the stars. And if you are able to count them, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Had anything changed between verse 5 and verse 6? Just a promise. Abraham hadn't run home and said, Honey, I'm 90. You're 80. Let's have a baby. She'd have probably slapped him. All he had was a promise. Abraham believed God. Now what happened? He had a crisis of belief. Now you go to verse 16, chapter 16. So Abraham and Sarah, if you just want to read between the lines, got impatient with God. It's been 10 years. I mean, how long do you have to wait on a promise? 
If God gives a promise, doesn't he want to fulfill it right then? I mean, shouldn't you get it in the moment? In this, you know, microwave mentality, instant society, if God tells you he's going to do something, do it right now. Don't make me wait. Waiting makes me have patience. Waiting makes me have faith. I don't want to have patience. I don't want to have faith. I don't want to walk by faith. So look at verse uh, 2. So Sarah said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, had the Lord prevented her from bearing children, or had the Lord just delayed his promise? She really misrepresented the Lord there. Be careful what you say about the Lord. It might end up in print. So the Lord's prevented me. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. I've got this surrogate mother idea, Lord. How about we do it that way? How about God's will? You're going to give us descendants. How about it's through Hagar? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting 90. You know, I just really don't want to go through childbirth. And, and I'm, I just, how, how about we do it with her? And God said, no. But they said, yes. And Abraham forgot that he believed God and reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham forgot it and said, okay, honey, whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'll do. And so Sarah said, go sleep with another woman, get us a child, and then we'll be over this whole, we need to have a child at our age thing. And so he went, Hagar conceived, and he had Ishmael. And look what happened, verse 5. Sarah said to Abraham, may wrong be done me, may the wrong be done me be upon you. Now she's blaming her husband. I mean, this sounds like Archie Bunker. I mean, what's going on here? Now she's blaming her husband. It's your fault that we've got this child. Oh, well, hey, honey, you're the one that brought it up. I don't care if I brought it up. I pray that whatever problems this causes be on your head because it's your fault. You should have done what I told you to do. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. So she fusses at him. And then look what happens in verse 6. So she treated Hagar harshly, and she fled from her household. This is the sin of I'm going to help God out. Now, God, you're not working on my timetable. You're not working on my plan. You're not doing things the way I want to do it. So I'm going to help God out. God promised an heir in Genesis 15. They got impatient in Genesis 16. It reminds me of the story of the guy that got pulled over in North Georgia. And the officer walked up to his car, and he leaned his head in the window, and he said, Son, I've been sitting here waiting for you all morning. And the kid looked up at him and said, I got here as fast as I could. (laughs) I mean, we're trying to help God out. We're trying to make God's way a better way. We, We run ahead of God, and then we say, God, look at the mess we're in. Look what happened, Lord. Did you know this was going to happen? Yeah, because you ran ahead of me. And you remember what Abraham did? We don't have time to get into it today. Remember what Abraham did when, when God said, Now, you're going to have a son, knucklehead, and it ain't going to be Ishmael that's going to be the child of promise. It's going to be another son. And Abraham said, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Lord, wouldn't you just accept the works of my flesh as the fulfillment of the promise, and we wouldn't have to go through this. Couldn't you just be happy? I mean, okay, I made a mistake. It was stupid. I'm sorry. 
But now I got this teenager, and, and, and then you want me to have another one? And Lord, just let Ishmael live. Let Ishmael be the child of promise. Change your plans because I messed up. And God said in South Georgia English, that ain't going to happen. We're going to do it my way. And so let me give you some principles. And by the way, we are still living today with Abraham and Sarah's fleshly choice. And we'll live with it for all our lives. From not waiting on God, be careful the consequences of not waiting on God. Let me give you some principles here and then we're through. First of all, you can't please God by your self-efforts. You can't please God by your self-efforts. Secondly, you can't be saved by self-effort. Thirdly, you can't accomplish God's purpose for your life in the flesh. I don't care whether you're in ministry, whether you're a deacon or Sunday school teacher or a young person or whoever you are, you cannot accomplish God's purpose for your life in your flesh. Your flesh, your righteousness, your good works are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. It is only what the Spirit of God does in you and through you that has any merit and has any eternal value and that will ever last beyond this life. So you can't accomplish the work of God in the energy of your flesh. Next, your timing and God's timing may not match up. Your timing and God's timing may not match up. Just because you think it's a good idea doesn't mean it's a God idea, by the way. Because a good idea may look good, may sound good, and even other Christians may tell you it's a good idea. But that doesn't mean it's a God idea, and it doesn't mean it's God's timing. God may seem slow, but he is never late. Never. This is a big one. There are no shortcuts to spirituality. You don't microwave saints. You don't, uh, it's not like popcorn. You pop it in and then if you, you're, you're mature. Growth is a process. The Christian life is a long walk in the right direction. If you want to define the Christian faith, it's a long walk in the right direction. Because you, there are no shortcuts to spirituality. You don't become instantaneously spiritual. You are filled with the Holy Spirit, but maturity is a process. Just as we have to mature physically, we have to mature spiritually. And then the last one, there are terrible consequences through impatience and the flesh. You see this when people don't wait until marriage to have sex. There are consequences. There are children born out of wedlock. There are broken homes because of a lack of trust. You see this when people try to steal from God and then they wonder why their finances are in a mess and because they try to take a shortcut and they think, I can live better on 100% than I can on 90%. God's principle is I can better live better on 90% than I can on 100%. You ask me to explain that and how it works, I can't explain that and how it works. I just know it works because I've watched it work in my life. And so when you try to take shortcuts, when you, when you think that a shortcut is going to get you to your destination, all it leads to is a dead-end road. A shortcut is always a dead-end road when it comes to spiritual matters. And there are consequences when you see people trying to find satisfaction in 
unspiritual and illegitimate ways. Remember Hagar? She lived with the consequences of her irrational and impatient decision. And so did Abraham. And so did Isaac. Because Ishmael kept going around the corner and every time mom and dad weren't looking, he was beating him up. He's still trying to beat him up. Even today. Why? Because something, listen to me, something born in impatience will always have the spirit of impatience. If you can't wait for God, then the consequences are you will get what you get because you can't wait. If you can't live according to God's promises, just know this. God doesn't bless the flesh. God does not condone the flesh. God condemns the flesh, making shortcuts. So here's a question. Anybody here trying to do God's will your way? Trying to take a shortcut in a business deal, in your marriage, in your dating relationship, in your finances, in a career move, trying to go around the process, don't want to wait on God, tired of waiting on God, impatient with God that he's not doing it on your timetable according to your plans. And you and your wife, you've talked about it, you've prayed about it, you believe that it's okay. God's going to be okay if you do that. You better step back, take a deep breath, get on your knees, open your Bible, and say something like this. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Quit telling God how to work it out and start listening for how he wants to work it out. I promise you, you'll have less sin to confess and less heartaches to deal with if you'll just do God's will God's way. He knows the time. He knows the timing. He knows the path. He knows the purpose. And he's not leaving you dangling. He's not going to push you to the edge of the cliff. He's got a purpose to teach you patience and faith and dependence and to get you to pray and to trust the Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you into all things. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.